2: This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 264, and we are recording on January 12th. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson. We are coming to you from Book Riot. I I think our brains are mostly functional
0: this morning. Yeah. 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 It's fine. I was just telling Jen uh, in our setup that this week has been like every morning I wake up to see who's been arrested and it's just been it's been very satisfying (laughs) i love consequences (laughs) (laughs) y'all
2: yeah we're all still processing i think a lot of stuff from the events of last week uh but but we're gonna try to talk about books and Mm -hmm. do it in a fun and interesting way so we'll see how that goes (laughs) So yeah, so let's get into how this show works. If this is the first time you are joining us, welcome. It is, as I said, a show for personalized reading recommendations, which means that we could send you a personalized reading recommendation. You can send us questions for yourself, for family, friends, loved ones. You could send a question for your book club, really whatever. And we will do our best to find you your next great read. You can send those questions in either via email, getbooked at bookriot.com, Or there's a form at the bottom of the show notes that are on the site for every episode. You can use that, too. If you have a time-sensitive question, like it's a birthday or you're going somewhere and you want to read it before then, et cetera, et cetera, please put time-sensitive and then the date at either the top of the form or in the subject line of the email. We will do our best to get to it. Uh, If we think we're not going to get to it on air, we might send you an email response. So keep an eye out for that. And we have a bunch of feedback. Uh, Oh, no, just kidding. Just one this time (laughs) from (laughs) Kelly, who has uh, recommendations for Nathan, who was a reader looking for fantasy world building and Harry Potter-esque fiction. Kelly recommends The Amulet of Samarkand by Jonathan Stroud about a boy magician in a magically structured society who learns to summon powerful familiars and also to question the system that raised him. And Artemis Fowl by Owen Colfer, which is about a boy genius who matches wits against the leprechaun magical police force in a scheme to reclaim his family heritage as criminal masterminds. So thank you, Kelly, for writing in. Good, Rex. Okay, so let's see. I'm going to read our first question, and then we'll do a sponsor, and away we'll go. So the first question is from Ben, who says, I recently read Stuart Turton's Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and The Devil in the Dark Water, and I'm trying to find more genre-bending books like those. My preferences are pretty open, though I try to stay away from YA. I do love that the aforementioned books involve a complicated mystery, but the mystery aspect isn't as important as the genre blending. Thank you for your help. All right,
1: so let's hear about a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So, he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life and then he meets Reina in 95 and she's like the best, she's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. Okay, so genre-blending, mystery-esque
2: books. Amanda, what do you got? Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I picked The Invisible Life of Adi LaRue by V.E. Schwab, which is her newest book. It came out in October. And this blends uh, historical fiction with science fiction and a little bit of fantasy. Nope. All the way around. Fantasy, a little bit of science fiction. (laughs) Depends on your perspective. Speculative fiction with historical fiction. So it opens in France in 1714. And it's about a girl named Adi who is, you know, like she's in her, I think she's 17 or she's in her early 20s, something like that. And is about to be married, super doesn't want to, you know, this is the early 1700s. So like not a lot of options. You get married or you are a witch and you die. Like these are pretty much the things that are facing this girl. And so... In, a, like, a moment of desperation as a means to escape, she runs off into the woods and makes a deal with a, a god who, you know, his name is Luke, L-U-C, so, like, as the devil, you know, but makes a deal with a god to uh, get her way, to get out of this situation. And the, the the deal that she makes is that she will be forgotten. Like, no one's going to remember who she is or know who she is. But in exchange, she has to live forever. So she is immortal, but no one can remember her. It's very like memento. Like as soon as people <sighs> see her, they have an interaction and then they forget who she is. And so she lives for 300 years this way. And most of it is in, you know, you know, she's like doing the watching the French Revolution happen, watching all these artistic and sociopolitical events happen and just kind of drifting around because nobody remembers her. Like being a witness to the world almost while engaged in this really big power struggle with this God who gave her this deal uh, trying to figure out a way out of it. So uh, this continues for 300 years until the year 2014 when she ends up in New York in a bookstore and a guy in the bookstore looks at her and says, I remember you. And that just blows open the whole thing. And then there's like this big adventure and it's like a romance and fantasy. You know, there's like this kind of time travel sort of element and the historical fiction all mashed up into one like epic adventure, power struggle, lots of queer characters. It's great. So that's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab.
2: Nice. I picked The Six Wakes by Mer Lafferty because it is, in fact, a like genre-blending mystery. It is sort of a locked-room murder mystery in space with clones. <laughs> it's really <laughs> an interesting mashup of premises. One of the main characters, Maria... Uh, wakes up on the spaceship and the way that cloning works in this is like you have like backup bodies and before you wake up a new clone for whatever reason you like download you know your consciousness into the new clone's brain. And you also do semi-regular backups of your brain in case, like, something unexpected happens. However, they were really not prepared for murder. So Maria wakes up in her newest clone body in this, like, holding bay where there's, like, bodies and, like, viscera and blood drifting all Mm. over the place. Yeah, it's really gross, Mm. actually. The opening scene is like, ugh! And her, like, she doesn't have the memories of what led to this. She has, like, some, she has memories of the voyage. She knows why she's there, but she has no idea how they got from the last thing she remembers to, like, almost everybody being dead. There's, like, a couple other people who are in their clones' bodies, and, like, nobody knows what happened. So they kind of have to figure out, like, was it me? Was it you? Like, who was it? And also, Why? And it becomes clear that a lot of these people have complicated histories and secrets that they don't want anybody else to know about. And like maybe they don't like want some things about themselves getting out. And like maybe they really don't want to know some of the things about some of the other people. And so there's a lot going on, but it's really interesting how Lafferty interweaves the world building of the society that sent this spaceship out. Like you get not just this, like who done it murder mystery, but you also get this really interesting view on what kind of a society has, you know, incorporated this kind of cloning and consciousness transfer into it. And what does that mean for a society? And like, what does it mean for politics? And how, how do all all of these things work and it's like really juicy interesting future thinking plus you know murder so i think you'll dig it again that six weeks by mer lafferty oh also we did an sff yeah episode um that's our sci-fi fantasy podcast we did an episode about some genre blending sci-fi fantasy books so i'll leave a link to that in the show notes if you want some more
0: All right. Our next question is from Diana who says it's been a rough year for everyone and I'm struggling to really see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm looking for a read without too much trauma on the page that imagines a better future or society. That's pretty open-ended but I enjoy so much of what gets recommended on the show. I trust you to run with it. Okay. Um, I picked a YA novel called That Inevitable Victorian Thing by E.K. Johnston and it is weird. Like it's Okay, it's weird. So it's Victorian-ish England, except not really. It imagines uh, the British Empire in a kind of near-future world, except the British Empire is both still a thing, like a a real, far-reaching, powerful thing, but... The effects of colonialism do not exist. So instead of the British Empire being uh, like putting a really violent and racist stranglehold on the planet, they have maintained their power through reconciliation and social justice measures. So the empire still exists, but like in a much more positive, happy, joyful kind of way. Just a story kind of way. And so Victoria Margaret is one of the main characters, and she's the crown princess of the empire at this point. She's a descendant of Victoria, the, the original one. And it's 200 years after Victoria's reign. And she is about to like come out into society, right? But before she does that, she's going to spend a summer kind of in dis- incognito. Nobody knows what she looks like. So she's going to spend a summer in a far-flung part, I think it's in Canada, part of the empire, um, having like one final childlike summer where she can kind of do whatever she wants before she gets introduced into society and prepares to take over running the empire. Um, She meets a guy named August, who is the heir to a big shipping firm that's dealing with a bunch of American pirates right now, because of course the Americans are pirates in this (laughs) situation. Um, And while she's in Toronto, uh, she also befriends Helena Marcus, who is uh, the daughter of one of the empire's genetic scientists. And in this universe, genetics are a big deal. So if you if you've read Infomocracy, you know how like all of your data is out there and everybody can figure out everything about you. It's very similar to that, except this is all your genetic information. And so this is how people get like pick friends or get assigned jobs or like find romantic partners. It's through genetic matchups as opposed to like interest or database matchups. It's really interesting. Um and so they like go off and have adventures and do things that YA characters do, you know, enough solve crime, whatever, save the world. The things that YA characters do. But that – the way that the author has written a British empire that isn't inherently blood-soaked, traumatized, and evil is, like, so interesting. It's so interesting and could never have happened. But, like, it's really nice to live in for a while, you know? It's just – oh, it's just cozy and cool and such a great thought experiment. So that's That Inevitable Victorian Thing by E.K. Johnston.
2: Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah yeah, I have so many questions., uh, I'm gonna have to read it and answer my questions. okay. Uh, so so my pick for you is a sort of it's a collection of uh, there's essays. there's poems, there's art, there's short stories. There's just uh, there's like lectures. there's all kinds of different things. It's the feminist Utopia project edited by Alexandra Brodsky and Rachel Cowder Nalibuff. And this is i it's so interesting because what they did was they asked like fifty plus women about what a what a feminist utopia would look like. And obviously they got 50 plus different answers because everyone has a different opinion and a different mm-hmm. vision of what utopia means and in fact what feminism means. And it's really it was a really interesting reading experience because I don't agree with all of them. Like, yeah. I, like the, some of these visions are not at all what I think of when I think of feminist utopia. But every single one, like, is very thought-provoking and also, like, very hopeful in a really soothing way. It's like, okay, right. There are different visions out there. And whether or not I agree with them or like want to live in that place, it is extremely interesting to think about all of the different ways that like what it could look like um, and Mm -hmm. what different people are looking for. And, you know, it is. An inclusive anthology, Uh, Janet Mock, is in here alongside, you know, Melissa Harris-Perry, who's like a famous journalist. And, you know, there's all kinds of writers and it just is a huge, huge list of contributors. And it's really interesting. And I just always feel like... There are certain pieces in the collection that are really special to me because they do feel resonant with what I hope to see. Um, but it, it, like, regardless of which ones speak to you personally, it is a really fascinating thought experiment. And I think it's really, it is really soothing and, and, and important in a lot of ways to hear all of these different voices and to reconsider some of the things that you take for granted about what those two words mean. So again, that's the Feminist Utopia Project. All right. Our next question is from Kathleen, who says on your most recent episode, the final one in 2020, one or both of you mentioned reading more nonfiction books than usual this year. I haven't gotten into nonfiction much, but would like to read more of it. So I was wondering what were your favorite nonfiction books you read in 2020? Kathleen, thank you for this lovely question. Mm. That's nice. Amanda, what was your favorite of 2020?
0: I picked The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia by Emma Copley Eisenberg. And this is a weird little book. It's a mashup of true crime and memoir. And I loved it because it's so meta and strange. But also because in 2020, I really wanted to read, I read a lot of uh, mystery thrillers and a lot of nonfiction about, like, bad guys getting their comeuppance, which, as I said at the beginning of the show, consequences are my jam. <laughs> and we didn't get enough of them last year. So, yeah. so this, uh, But th- this is an interesting um, perspective on that because it doesn't necessarily happen. So, Emma, the memoir part is that uh, Emma is from, I think she's from New York. Yeah, she's a longtime New Yorker. She goes to college, becomes a, like, you know – insufferable liberal do-gooder as we all tend to and then decides that she's going to move to West Virginia to this county where uh, she's going to work at a um, what's it called a summer camp for girls who are like teens who are at risk. So she goes to this county and she ends up like really, really enjoying her time there. She falls in love with the landscape, a little bit with the people, kind of not so much with the people, but maybe a little bit with the people. She can't quite figure out how she feels about it, um, but really, really loves her time there and decides that she's going to stay. And so she stays in West Virginia and she gets really caught up in this um, kind of apocryphal double murder that happened in this county in the 80s, actually in 1980. Pocahontas County is the name of the county. And it's still pretty famous around here because Pocahontas County is one of the only counties that you can go to that doesn't have cell service, like, through the whole thing. It's like a dead zone. Anyway, so these two women were going to attend a, like, hippie peacenik outdoor peace festival in Pocahontas County in 1980 called the Rainbow Gathering. Um, And they were hitchhikers. They were murdered. Uh, They were found on the property of one of a, a couple of locals and the 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 murder took a really long time to quote unquote solve and it was never really solved like was it a local who didn't appreciate a bunch of hippies invading you know or like was it another hitchhiker was it a hippie of the from the festival who did this like there are so many different theories and the murders still kind of reverberate into this community's life now. And so Emma wants to kind of wrap it up and figure out what happened. And in doing so, she becomes more and more entrenched in Pocahontas County and in living there and has to do a lot of examination of her own kind of like condescension, right? Of like, I am a Yankee coming into West Virginia to fix it when like nobody asked you to come here and fix it. We're actually pretty fine with the way things are here, even though like maybe we shouldn't be, but maybe we should be. I don't know. You know, it's like very complicated. And the whole thing is hashtag complicated. And I love that because... The thing, the, okay, ignore the ratings for this on Goodreads. It's got a pretty low rating on Goodreads because a lot of people go into it wanting to read about two pretty white girls getting murdered because that's why true crime is popular. Mm. We like to read about pretty white girls getting murdered. Instead, what you get is a journalist being like, hey, why are you so obsessed with pretty white girls getting murdered? And why do I feel the need personally to go into this, this place that I wasn't invited, ingratiate myself, and then judge them? Why because I'm obsessed with pretty white girls getting murdered. And I think that a lot of people don't appreciate that mirror being held up to them because true crime fans like what they like, you know? Mm. So ignore the ratings. It's super meta, very introspective. I really enjoyed it. So that's The Third Rainbow Girl by Emma Copley Eisenberg.
2: Nice. Yeah, this question was actually hard in that there. I did read a lot of nonfiction last year, and so much of it was really good. But when I was looking through my spreadsheet, this one kept popping out to me. So uh, here's what we're getting: it's The Mason House by T. Marie Bertino, and this is a memoir by a woman of Indigenous heritage, Ojibwe, and. She struggled with a lot of the things that are uh, problems in the uh, Native community. There are, you know, alcoholism, addiction, uh, poverty, domestic violence. All of these things were part of her experience growing up. But also, you know, she had this beautiful relationship with her grandmother. Um, She grew up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and she has a lot of place feelings like the way that she portrays her childhood and you know her like what it was like to grow up in that specific location is so well done and her relationship with her grandmother oh oh my gosh I have so many feelings about it her very complicated relationship with her mother is also really moving and what I love about this memoir too is that you know she's talking about really difficult things and sharing her own trauma and and growth experiences but she has so much gentleness for everyone involved for herself for her mother for her grandmother like she just she she doesn't shy away from depicting the hard stuff but there is this very soft touch that You know, it's just kind of amazing to me to have that much generosity for the hard things in life. It's very inspiring. And she's also a beautiful writer. She's, you know, she's just it's so evocative. It's so compelling. Um, And it's actually pretty short, right? Like it's I don't have the the page count isn't here on my reference sheet, but it's not long. Um, But it packs a huge emotional punch. And I just think that, yeah, I think it's I think it's a really wonderful memoir. And I hope more people read it. Um, It's also from a small local press uh, to Philly, Lanternfish Press, who I love. So. Shout out to them. All right. So that's The Mason House by T. Marie Bertino.
0: All right. Our next question comes from P who says, I'm looking for some new reading recs for my girlfriend preferably a series she can dig into she and i have slightly different tastes so i'm looking to the expert she loved game of thrones harry potter and the hobbit series books she's read recently that she enjoyed were little eyes by samantha uh, schweblin the one by john mars my sister the serial killer and now she's loving memoirs of a porcupine she couldn't get into the handmaid's Tale or fever dream she loves a good plot loves dogs ghosts are good and she likes imaginative books and worlds okay plot dogs ghosts yeah (laughs) I picked the Old Kingdom series by Garth Nix. Book one is Sabriel. Uh, I picked it mostly for book two, which has a dog as a sidekick because she said she loved dogs. But you do need to read them in order, which will be totally worth it because Sabriel is an amazing book. Okay, so this is a YA fantasy series, but it came out so long ago. Like This was a big deal in the, the mid-90s. I discovered mm. it when I was in high school. So if you're thinking like... Whatever, whatever like stereotypical thing you're thinking about YA fantasy, it's not it's not that not to say that stereotypical things about YA fantasy are bad. I love YA fantasy. Don't email me. But uh, it's it's like more hobbity, you know, like dense, I think, than a lot of what we're used to from YA now. So the main character's name is Sabriel. She lives in a boarding school in a place called Ancestral, uh, which is across the border from the Old Kingdom. And in this universe, the place where she lives in the boarding school is pretty normal. Like it has electricity, kind of normal. Still, like, a little bit medieval in flavor. Uh, She lives in, like, a big castle. Whatever. It's a boarding school. And then across the border in the Old Kingdom, there is magic. There are necromancers. Um, Sometimes the dead, like, don't super stay that way. They come out and, like, make mischief or whatever. Hence, you know, ghosts are good. I have many ghosts for you. Um, Her father is actually very famous in the Old Kingdom. He is the Abhorson, which is a, not a royal position but like an inherited very important position he is the uh his job is to keep the dead from coming back to life from like leaving death coming back to life and wreaking havoc on the kingdom she discovers that her father has gone missing in her last semester at school and so she has to take up the mantle like literally the thing that he wears with all the bells on it that like do magic of the abhorsen to find out what happened to her father and as she goes through these um like, tries to solve the mystery of what hap- what's happened to her dad and where he's gone. She discovers a lot of, like, political intrigue that she gets involved with and has to save the world, as is so common in in fantasy novels. It is so richly imagined. Like, the scenes where she goes to the underworld are just like delicious and creepy and the villains are so villainy and in book two uh, which is called Lirial it's about a cousin of hers who has a, ma- a magical sidekick who is a dog who talks to her it's called the Despicable Dog It's I think it's like it looks like a basset hound on the cover and in my head it was definitely a basset hound so <laughs> if you have breed preferences the Despicable Dog is a basset hound in book one Sabriel Sabriel has a um, cat sidekick named Mugget who talks to her and is very sassy and um, is they're all magical beings and it's just like lovely and dark and weird and has you know if like if the if game of thrones and harry potter and the hobbit had a much less rapey child it would be it would be the old kingdom (laughs) series so that is uh the old kingdom series by garth nix book one is sabriel do love that series so good formative
2: Although the dog in my head was more like Dobermini for some reason. Oh really? I don't know why. Yeah. I couldn't tell you why though.
0: I think because it was so cranky, I I <laughs> I made it a basset. Because bassets are like, I'm not getting up. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. <laughs>
2: Uh, all right. I don't have dogs for you, uh, but I do have maybe ghosts. And I do what I what I have what I gathered from this list, this very interesting list of things that your girlfriend loves are that she doesn't want unreliable narrators, that she's like, OK, with a certain level of weirdness mm-hmm. and that she likes speculative elements. And so I'm picking for you one of my favorite speculative fiction books that I read last year, although I believe it came out earlier than that. The Old Drift by Namwali Serpel. It does come with trigger warnings for rape and racism, including racial slurs. Um, and these things are there, but they are not overly graphic. Well, <laughs> take it back. The The racial slur use Is really intense, especially in the first chapter, because you're in the head of a, like, settler, colonizer, European in Africa. So, like, it's gross. But if you can get past that chapter, which you can, I promise, it is so worth it. And the premise of this book is that it follows, it's like a 100 years of history in Zambia, um, starting with before it was a specific country at the Victoria Falls and this settlement uh, of Europeans. And there are three families uh, who include, you know, black, white, and then um, a mixed race uh, folks. And you follow these different families over the course of the hundred years and how their lives sort of wind in and out of each other's and also in and out of the history of Zambia, including like, a slightly into the future. And let me tell you that the point at which this gets so science fictional is so subtly done that I didn't even realize it until we were like deep into it. And I was like, oh, that's not real. Like it's so seamless <laughs> because everything up to that point is so historically accurate and so convincing. And then sh- like Pell just like slides these speculative elements in and you haven't even like I truly did not notice until we were already pretty far forward into the even more speculative stuff and I was like oh 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 interesting it's like really well done and it is an incredibly affecting story for so many reasons Um, you get very attached to some of these characters you kind of hate some of them but like you know it's that love-hate relationship you have with certain characters Um, and it is it is just a really amazing look at both The impact of European colonization on an African country and like what 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 are the like future repercussions and what how do people make their lives in the context of all of this? Um, And there's this like potentially ghosty is it a ghosts don't know thing Uh, narrative device in there Um, that I think uh, she will love as well. And I just this was an amazing book. Uh, I want more people to read it. And I think she would dig it given the other things that she likes. Uh, so, again, that's The Old Drift by Namwali Serpell. And it is time for another sponsor break.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammond's. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode.
2: Our next question is from Carrie T. Who says, oh, this is a very long question. So I'm going to do some summarizing. Says, I've recently gotten into reading literary fiction. I'm looking for some egregiously overlooked literary fiction that you feel everyone should love and read. I'm not looking for the super popular books that have been hyped, but looking for those little gems that readers may have missed. I've read Ask Again Yes, A Little Life, which ruined me for a week, <laughs> uh-huh. The Heart's Invisible Furies, On Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous, and Others, and Love Them All. Just started everything I never told you. Why it took me so long to read Celeste Ng, I don't know. Any recommendations you provide would be greatly appreciated. Uh, Amanda, what overlooked literary fiction do you have to recommend?
0: I picked America is not the heart by Elaine Castillo. Uh, there's a line in this question where Carrie says recommendations can be in dark, as dark or depressing as you want. In fact, I'd prefer that. Right. So I felt okay about this one. America is not the heart comes with a trigger warning for political torture. So you know where we're going here. The main character's name is Hero. And she has just arrived in America from the Philippines. It takes place in the 90s. And then you like flashback a little bit to the 80s. Um, She's been disowned by her parents and is moving into uh, the home of her uncle, Paul, and his wife, Paz, who live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And when she arrives, she can't effectively use her hands. uh, And then she outstays her visa. So she is in the country illegally. She's unable to do much of the work that's available to somebody in that position because her hands don't really function. And it's the 80s in California. So she's like, um, well, what do I do here? But she's also like very quiet. She's obviously got a lot of secrets. And then, of course, there's the big question about what happened to her hands. And based on the trigger warning, I'm sure you can guess what it was. And so you flashback between her or you go back and forth between her life in San Francisco where she's trying to like, have one, like, build a life after everything that has happened to her, and then how she got there. Um, And growing up in the Philippines in the the house of, like, an actually very powerful and wealthy family. And she decides to join uh, the communist insurrectionists under the DeMarco regime. And the communist insurrectionists are violent and Uh, it's not a safe situation for her, Uh, but her family, but she has like really, really uh, useful political family ties because her family is wealthy, powerful tied to the Dimarco family. Um, And so eventually she's captured and a bunch of stuff happens to her um, in, in trying to get her out of, you know, out of prison. And it's just, it's just very complicated. And there's a lot of political turmoil. Um, And then after she leaves, she's, kind of forced to leave the country not just leave prison and she comes to the u.s um and so it's it's not just deal- her dealing with the trauma of being tortured or the trauma of losing her country but also like her family won't speak to her her parents will not speak to her they are themselves in a much more precarious position in the philippines after the demarcos are removed from power and so they're dealing with their own stuff it's just like a really heartbreaking and dark family saga And it's such a weird juxtaposition, almost, going from the things that she suffers in, like, the jungles of the Philippines to going to, like, house parties in the Bay Area and trying to figure out how to, like, be a person at a party. Like, how do you do that after everything that you've experienced Mm. at home? It's so, it's such a mind, like, I don't know, thing I can't say on this show so we don't lose our not explicit rating, but it's so heartbreaking and, and heavy, but... Enjoyable is like a weird word to use about it. I couldn't put it down if that compelling is probably what I'm trying to say. So that's America is not the heart by Elaine Castillo.
2: Yeah, I also went dark because you said. (laughs) (laughs) Because you let me. (laughs) And uh, I picked My Year of Meats by Ruth Ozeki, which came out a long, well, not that long ago. I mean, it came out in 1999, 1998 even. So like that is actually a, a while ago, especially in book years. That's like a long time ago and i don't feel like ozeki gets read as much as she deserves to and this book is so strange y'all i'm going to give some trigger warnings for child abuse um like animal stuff like it's 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 like factory farming which is pretty abusive to the animals uh gets uh looked at a lot here and then there's other weird dark stuff that i can't remember precisely enough to give a trigger warning but it is very extremely dark um, and kind (laughs) of gross so it's it's about a woman uh who is a documentarian um her name is jane takagi little and she has been like struggling to you know it's not like there's like a ton of well-paying jobs for documentarians um but she gets this gig to produce a Japanese television show that is sponsored by an American meat exporting business. So like basically her job is to like go around America and film people like families, happy American families cooking meat. And it's it's aired in Japan. And the whole point of this show more or less is to encourage Japanese viewers to buy American meat products. But of course, as she does her job she like digs into the american meat business and discovers some very upsetting gross disturbing things and she also ends up crossing paths with akiko ueno who is a housewife in japan who is oh right domestic violence trigger uh who is in a very unhappy marriage so the way that these two finally intersect is really intense and interesting. And the way that, like, the families involved, are portrayed. Like, it's so, especially if you've watched a lot of reality TV, which I think it's safe to say most of us have. It's like Ozaki really captures the vibe of reality TV where it's, like, meant to be, like, wholesome and lovely. But like also there's this very dark undertone and then really digs into that dark undertone. Um, I will say that if you don't want to think critically about the food that you eat, you should not read this book because (laughs) everything in here is based on the truth, like actual factual information about how big farming uh particularly big butchery works um and it's not great uh but it is i think it's an important book and i think it's a really incredibly well written book and i think that ruth ozeki is amazing so again that's my year of meats by ruth ozeki
0: all right our next question is from sarah who says i usually read darker mysteries and thrillers but during the pandemic i've been turning to cozy mysteries a lot as they are really the ultimate comfort reads especially when you can dive into a series But one thing that's coming to annoy me in most modern cozies is that the protagonist rarely solves the murder through deductive reasoning. Usually they blunder around asking questions until the murderer has had enough and decides to try to murder them as well, at which point our main character manages a narrow escape. Can you recommend a contemporary cozy mystery series where the protagonist actually uses clues to solve the murder rather than just figures out who it is by almost getting murdered themselves? cozy series i've read during the pandemic include agatha raisin the main Clambake series the meg lanslow series tea shop mysteries and daisy's tea garden i also really love a lot of historical series including flavia de luce who uses clues and logic more than most but i'm looking for something contemporary nothing magical or paranormal please okay i'm gonna keep going I don't actually know if this fits, but I think it does. (laughs) Because, okay, you got to stay with me here. I picked Dead in the Garden by Dahlia Donovan. It's the first book in the Grasmere Cottage Mystery Series. There are three. And the actual murderer, like the murderer, is caught in book three, which I have not read. But I have read book one, and I think that it will fit even if ultimately the murderer in book three comes after The couple who the book is about. Okay, so stay with me. Okay, so this is about a couple living in a tiny little village in the UK. Uh, It's a gay couple, Valor, who is the son of an earl, uh, a disgraced son of an earl, rejected by his family, who owns what is called the Ginger's Bread, because he has red hair, (laughs) uh, which is a biscuit shop. And his partner, Bashan, who is an Indian man who is autistic and is a London Symphony Orchestra musician. So they live together. They met at Harrow, which is like a fancy posh boarding school, um, and have, you know, fell in love. I think they were roommates, fell in love, and have moved out um, to this tiny little village to like live their life. They have a cat named Staccato, they own a gingerbread shop. Like, what more do you want? (laughs) Until somebody turns up dead in their garden. You don't want that, I assume. Nobody wants that. They don't recognize him. It's, like, super weird. Of course, they call the police immediately. But it turns out that the person, the the dead guy, is somebody that they went to Harrow with. And not just somebody that they went to Harrow with, but somebody who bullied Bashan really badly while they were... At school, And I will say that this comes with a trigger warning for racism, ableism, and homophobia. And those are all the reasons why Bashan got bullied uh, at school by this one particular person who is now dead. And they also find objects on the victim's person that has Bashan's fingerprints on it. So the police arrest Bashan. Now, Bashan, as I said, is autistic and can't really function well with interruptions to his routine and has a lot of sensory issues. So like prison is not a great place for his health. And so Valor decides that he's going to get involved in this investigation Not to solve the crime. He kind of almost doesn't care who the murderer is, which is why I think that this will fit your question because like he's not taking it on himself to bumble around until he finds out who's actually responsible for the crime. All he wants to do is get the man he loves out of jail. Like he wants to solve this far enough that he can prove that Bishon had nothing to do with it so that he can get him out of jail to protect his health. And so that's what he does. And it's so lovely. I really, really appreciated this book because for one thing, the cops are not mean and they're not dumb. So the cops warn... Valor about putting himself in danger and like he listens. He's like, you're right. That would be dumb of me. I'm going to go ahead and not do that. You know, um, also he uses a lot of reasoning. He, he uses, um, computer skills. He uses friends of his who are experts in various computer skills to help solve a, so some different clues that are presented to him to get to the bottom of the case. He doesn't put himself in harm's way unnecessarily and, uh, his classmates from, a hero um are are form this kind of really intense found family where that that's really, really lovely. And presents a nice counter picture of, you know, you read a lot about boarding boys' boarding schools in the UK and like they're bullies and they're bigots and they're awful. But all of these men come, you know, these men are in their 30s and 40s, come together to help this couple, like very lovingly. And they like talk about their feelings a lot. It's just lovely and nice. It's very, very cozy and very soothing. You almost don't care. I didn't care who the killer was. Like, you just want to see this sweet, sweet man get out of jail. <laughs> and whatever happens after that is like almost irrelevant, although it does eventually happen. Book two is from Bashan's point of view, and I will say that it is on Voices. The author is autistic. And then in book three, if you care to find out who the murderer is, you can you can do so. So that's Dead in the Garden by Dahlia Donovan.
2: I will say that Amanda was sending me like all caps exclamation mark <laughs> details about this book and listeners I bought it
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was only $1.99 so yeah it's very it. <laughs>
2: affordable in ebook uh so that's happening I picked Death at Breakfast by Beth Gutchen. I went to the contributor Slack for some ideas, and I think it was Jessica Woodbury who recommended this one. But it it turned out to be a great rec because this is a really fascinating book in that it's sort of like the combination of a cozy and a procedural, which is really interesting. It's not like Mm -hmm. any cozy I've read before. It's also not like any procedural I've read before. It really is a Venn diagram, like the overlap between those two things. It does deal with some heavy stuff, uh, I'll, like as, you know, more cozies than you would think come with a lot of trigger warnings, it turns out. Um, trigger warnings for this one include suicide, drug abuse, child abduction, and fat phobia. But the, so the, the main sleuths in the sleuths, sleuths, I don't know how to say that word. Uh, the, the detective, the uh, amateur detectives in this are two friends who are retired. Um, so if you're looking for older female characters, this is where you should head. Uh, Maggie and Hope. One of them is a very recently retired school, like headmistress. She, she ran a private school. And her friend is... Wealthy socialite. And they are, you know, Maggie has just recently retired and Hope is like, we're going to Maine. Pack your things. I'm treating you to like this whole, you know, idyllic inn and we're going to take a cooking class from, like, a really great chef at this inn, and it's going to be amazing. Um, And so they go to the Aquasic Mountain Inn, and they're they're with all of these other people who have also signed up for this week-long cooking class. And so there's a lot of, like, supporting characters who become very interesting over the course of the book. And then this... These three people arrive at the hotel who are clearly, like, not down with the, like, chill, we're all here to, like, drink some drinks and learn to make a souffle vibe. They're, it's Alexander, Lisa, and Lisa's sister, Glory. Alexander and Lisa are a couple. And they're like Hollywood, nouveau riche, sort of, there's like a little bit of a Kardashian sort of vibe. Um, they're famous for being famous. The the husband, Alexander, is like made a lot of money in business. Um, and like they they're very ostentatious and very extremely rude and loud and like intoxicated. And he's going to smoke cigars in the hotel, even though he's not supposed to. And they have a terrible dog. Who won't shut up and like the whole nine yards like they're driving everyone nuts. And then and it takes a while to get to this point. There's a murder involving the three of them. You can find out who if you want in the Goodreads notes. But because it takes a while, I'm kind of like not going to say it on air. And immediately, you know, there's all of these different suspicions. And I thought that it was really fun to watch Maggie and Hope investigate. Um, Maggie's, I should say, no, Hope. It's Hope's son is also the deputy sheriff of the town that they're in, which is how she knows about this mountain inn. And so she's like, she's like, pestering him for information that he's not supposed to share with civilians, but it's his mom, so like what's he gonna do? Not tell her? Like he doesn't know how to say no to her and then they're using their old lady wiles to like get people to tell them things and and also their connections from lives, you know, interesting lives well lived to call in favors to find out more like they just can't let it rest they just want to, they want to know like what happened and they are using logic and clues clues and, you know, amateur detective work to solve the crime. And it is very enjoyable. It has some real funny moments and a lightness of touch that, like, I think puts it sort of in the cozy camp. But you switch a lot of perspectives. You get, you know, the deputy sheriff's perspective. You get this other cop's perspective. You get this reporter's perspective. Um, You even get the perspective of some of the other folks at the inn who, like, maybe you don't kind of want to be in their heads. But it's really interesting. It's very well done. I would definitely read more in this series. Um so again that's Death at Breakfast by Beth Gutchen. Oh, and the last question is from Amanda, different Amanda, uh, who says, I just read Circe by Madeline Miller. I absolutely loved it. I'm so intrigued by Greek mythology right now. Can I have some recommendations on books on Greek mythology? The Song of Achilles by Miller is on my list. I'm looking for fictional retellings or easy read nonfiction. Amanda, I've been talking for 5000 years. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I picked The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker, which was long for the Women's Prize uh, in 2019, which is why I picked it up. And this is a fictional retelling of The Iliad. And it's about Briseis, who is the queen of one of Troy's neighboring kingdoms. And as the Greeks are, um, or no, the Greeks? whatever, as Achilles' army is uh, coming into, <laughs> well, that was a weird brain fart, um, is, you know, marching on Troy during the war. Um, they they take this this kingdom that Briseis is the queen of, and she is taken as a, a human prize and is given, quote unquote, to Achilles um, to be her slave. She's a, a prize of battle and has to really quickly figure out how to stay alive by placating this man. Um, and then Agamemnon, who is the leader of the Greek forces, demands this woman For his own self, like he takes Briseis from Achilles. And so she gets kind of caught between these two men. And in his his response, his temper tantrum, Achilles' temper tantrum that he has here is that he's not going to fight. And so the Greeks start to lose to the Trojan army as this happens. And so you're big trigger warning for rape. Like, obviously, she is a... She's being trafficked functionally and she's a prisoner of war. And there is no, when I went into this book, I was really suspicious, I guess, almost that it would be, you know, like this victim of these horrific crimes observing Achilles and that Achilles would be presented as like a a, a sympathetic figure um, and he's really not. Like there's never a point at which she explains away his behavior or that she justifies her um, position or... That she comes to, you know, understand him. And the mythology comes in because Achilles is supposed to be the son of a goddess and a human father. Um, And so he's, like, tormented and strong and, like, beyond human understanding and all these things. And she's just, like, not having any of it. (laughs) She is here along with all these other women who were taken as prizes of war or whatever to survive and then hopefully outlive this moment and hopefully outlive this man. Right. And then she's constantly looking for ways to make it through the next 30 minutes, to make it through the next hour, to make it through this evening um, so that she can live to see another day and hopefully come to a place eventually where she has outlived this war. And that is, you know, has, even though this is a a retelling of of a myth and is very much based in like the actions that the gods take, on the sidelines this is a story about women surviving war which is outside of time and you know relevant to all societies so that's the silence of the girls by pat barker
2: so i have a sort of epic contemporary poem for you (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i swear you're gonna love it uh it is the half god of rainfall by inua Ellams. this also comes with a trigger warning for rape can you have greek mythology retellings without Mm -mm. it i don't think you can Mm -mm. it's not possible Mm -hmm. But this is is fascinating because it involves both Greek gods and uh, Yoruba gods and goddesses. And it takes place both in Nigeria and America. And when I describe this book to people, I often pitch it as if The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller and The Last Dance, that HBO documentary about the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, had a baby that was an epic poetry baby This is it. (laughs) And it's a really weird combination that works so incredibly well. The main characters are Modupe, who is a young woman who is like very beautiful and beloved of the goddess Ocean. And uh, she was sort of, you know, set apart by the goddess and meant to be protected. But then another god, Sango, got in a like, kind of like a male posturing fight with Zeus over who is the more powerful god of lightning. And Zeus won. And in winning, sort of, got access to in the gross way, uh, Modupe. And so uh, she bears a son whose nickname is Demi, and he turns out to be a basketball prodigy. Also, when he is angry or cries, like water happens, like rain and thunder and rivers and all of this kind of stuff. So He is a demigod and he grows up to become like this, you know, renowned basketball player because of his skills on the court um, and draws the attention of the gods in a way that he is not supposed to. And ultimately what this story is about is the power of survivors of rape and abuse and like what it looks like when they take that power into their own hands to deliver consequences. Amanda, consequences. 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 Jam. <laughs> but it's so interestingly done. I don't read a lot of poetry, certainly not like epic poetry. Um, And this reads so smoothly and it just sucks you right in. Like you don't even realize how quickly you're moving through the story as you read it. Ellens is so good. He's also a playwright. And I uh, super want to read more of his work because this is just so compelling. Um, but it just pl- it, it takes these, you know, myths and gives a new perspective, I think, for a lot of Western readers and also is just beautifully crafted and really like delivers on the feelings that I think you want from these kinds of retellings. So, again, that's The Half-God of Rainfall by Inua Elms. And that's our show. Yay! Thanks to our audio editor, Jen Zink, for taking out all of our flubs. Thank you all for listening. And if you are so inclined, we would love for you to leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks to find the show, and we appreciate the feedback. Thanks also go out to our sponsors who make the show possible. In between episodes, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you at?
0: I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson.
2: I am also mostly on Instagram these days at I am Jen, IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you next time.